What's one thing you wish everybody knew? I'm your host and producer, Dexter Thomas, and I also happen to be a postdoc at the Humanities Council here at Princeton. So this is the second episode in a two-part series. In case you haven't heard the first one, I definitely encourage you to go back and check that first. If you've already done that, you're in the right place. And just as a reminder, in this series, the stories are coming from four Princeton students. They'll be talking about their research, and the topics are all pretty different, but they all come back to how we talk to one another. I know that might not make a whole lot of sense just yet, but hopefully it will soon. In this episode, I've got another two stories for you. One has to do with a doctor, a picture book, and a big sister who's doing her best to look out for her little brother. But first, I want to talk about internet slang, specifically Serbian internet slang. To start us off, I want you to imagine the letter Y. Lowercase, uppercase, doesn't really matter. Color doesn't really matter either, but let's go with a nice deep orange. Got it? Cool. Now, odds are that you have no idea what I'm talking about and you're pretty confused like I was when I first started talking to this next guest. So let's get into it. Uh, my name is Amina Faruqi. I'm a graduating senior at Princeton, concentrating in linguistics, and I have a certificate in visual arts too. So just as an aside before we really get into this, we're mostly going to be speaking about the Serbian language here, but most of the things that we say here are also going to apply to a larger group of languages called BCS, for Bosnian, Croatian, and Serbian. These languages have differences, but they're all mutually intelligible. That said, here we go. Um, so I grew up in Serbia, um, lived there for most of my life, moved to the US when I was 13. So I started here in like middle school and then just went to American schools until college. I actually grew up bilingual my mom is Serbia and my dad is Pakistani, so both of them just communicated in English. So I kind of grew up learning English and Serbian at the same time. So moving here, I became more and more used to like using English formally and in school. And the only person that I really spoke Serbian with still was um, my mom. And there were kind of like a lot of times when I would just, I kind of forgot how to like properly express a certain sentiment and then express it in a way that just sounded really awkward when there was actually like a right way to say it. Huh. How did your mom react to that? Kind of maybe like a joking, mocking response from my mom or there was just like, oh, like you forgot about this or like you're like not using Serbian enough. Not in a, you know, demeaning way or anything, but just in kind of a joking way, but a joking way that kind of uh, alarmed me. Mm. Um so that's the kind of stuff that started to worry me. Um, and then that led me into over the pandemic, actually, um, of kind of going in and like seeking this kind of not community, but like small friend group and then kind of circle that I hovered around in or like lurked around in just so I could be exposed to the language more. Um, yeah. And also so I could use it with people. And from being exposed to these various kind of online circles um, of BCS speakers, especially on Twitter, 
I came across this uh, particular phenomenon or convention that ended up being the focus of my senior thesis. That phenomenon was that people were writing things that looked like gibberish. They were intentionally misspelling certain words, especially slang words. I asked Amina to give me an example. There's, for example, um, like ufazono, which people use it to kind of mean something has some kind of vibe or it's like in the style of something. Uh -huh. um, and so the way that like that would be spelled is like U-F-A-Z-O-N-U. And then this like final U would be replaced with Y. So it was taking these various kind of slang terms that just had like Y like substituted in. So keeping in mind um, that the BCS writing system does not use like the character Y um, to like represent any sound in the language. Um, so that's not a character that is used along with like along with like X and like W and Q. Wait, so, um, so does this mean if, if you're Serbian and you're writing on your keyboard, you just never touch the Y key? Basically, yeah, theoretically, yes. Wow. Um, okay. It just sits there. <laughs> yeah, it just, yeah, it's just, it sits there. And yet, Amina kept seeing tons of online chatter using this Y character, which again, isn't even supposed to be there, which means that it's not actually pronounceable. I mean, imagine I took the word birthday and deleted the letter H and then put an ampersand where it used to be and then showed you that new word and asked you to pronounce it. You probably think I'd lost my mind, but tons of people were actually writing like this. But even though it looked random, Amina had the feeling that there was something systematic happening here, like rules were naturally starting to develop on their own. So Amina started doing some analysis. People would use Y to replace both Y sounds, which makes sense, um, but also to replace basically any vowel at the end of a word or like at the rightmost edge of a word and typically only choose, you know, one vowel like within a word to replace it with and also one word within a phrase or like a tweet um, to replace it with. So it, it seemed like it was like maybe used for some sort of emphasis. It would be put on like a random word in a sentence um, or like you would feel like there's a reason like why they like chose a word to use Y on, but you can't really like put a finger to it. So you, you, you get online and you just see, you're just seeing people using kind of random characters and words. I mean, this kind of sounds like if all of a sudden you haven't really been spending a whole bunch of time on the English internet for a while. And then you get on and all of a sudden the way that people like to replace S with a dollar sign. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They think it looks cool. But then all of a sudden somebody starts replacing B with a dollar sign and T with a dollar sign and just any yeah. letter. And, and so you're seeing that, you know, kind of the equivalent of this is maybe a bad example, but you see mm -hmm. the equivalent of this. What was your response? What did you think? Did you just think, man, I've really been gone for a long time. Or <laughs> what were you thinking? Um, yeah, I guess it was, it was like kind of like a little bit like that because I was like, this is how like the people, like the kids talk right now. And not, not even really kids, but like even like young adults, early 30s, teenagers. So it's like a pretty wide age span. But like this is how like people talk now. Um, but I found it more like just 
interesting. I couldn't really like pick up on like what exactly was it that prompted someone to use it because it didn't seem like it was completely random. So I think a lot of people would see that and say, oh, that's weird. Some people Mm -hmm. write weird stuff on the internet. You decided to write a thesis on it. Yeah. Not a common response. (laughs) (laughs) But it's what brings us here today. So Mm -hmm. you started researching this. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the what what you found. What what was the origin of all this? So the why like actually um, originated on this Serbian specific Facebook meme page. It was called um, Ručno pravljeni nakit um, or like handmade accessories. Okay. It started out in like 2013 and like everyone that I tell this to like thinks that it sounds like really weird. But it's a meme page that was meant to parody other Facebook pages that sold handmade jewelry just like a kind of satirical parody page um, would like kind of pretend to like make jewelry out of like, like plastiline and like sell it, but not really. So it would kind of like imitate it in these ways, but mm-hmm. in with always this kind of uh, very kind of infantile or like sort of mocking sarcastic undertone. But yeah. So over the years developed its own like kind of very distinctive writing style that it became known by it, it's kind of seemed like the goal of this writing style was like first to just look extremely ridiculous and like bizarre and also to look maybe kind of like cutesy or like immature and what this writing style consisted of was replacing all V's with W's, replacing all H's with X's, and uh, replacing any and all vowels with Y. So this handmade accessories weird meme page is writing in this bizarre format. And then what, did people just start copying it? How did it jump from there to other places? Yeah, so... This meme page is actually like very popular, but what was interesting was that you wouldn't really know if people using these conventions like actually know where it came from. I would assume that like people who are from Serbia and use it, most of them would probably associate it with the meme page or like they would know where it came from. But someone who was living in Bosnia who used it um, most likely would like not be familiar with this meme page, or at least the people that I've asked like had no idea what it was. Which is maybe the hallmark of a successful meme, when the people who were using it don't even know where it came from. So anyway, Amina collected samples of a few hundred messages online that used the Y slang, which was harder than it sounds because, well, take that example of if people started using the dollar sign in place of random consonants. You wouldn't be able to just go to twitter.com and type in a dollar sign because you'd get stock prices and things that were completely irrelevant. And for reasons that I won't even get into here linguistically, looking up misspelled slang in Serbian on Twitter is just as bad as it would be in English, or maybe actually worse. But Amina was able to find some patterns. For example, they were able to confirm that people tended to put Y at the end of a word. Not always, but usually. But even beyond that grammar, there seemed to be some social norms forming around this thing. People didn't just tweet Y slang on the timeline to the public. 
Most people tended to only use it in replies when talking to other users who also used the Y. And there was something else. So it, it, it ends up like maybe having like more of this like social connotation. What I've noticed is that a lot of people who like use Y in this way or like apply like the most liberally are like people who like identify as queer. So it seems to be like maybe that like people just like kind of adopt just kind of a distinctive stylized way of writing or communicating. Um, but there's, yeah, this kind of added social aspect to how it's used. That's interesting. How how are you able to find that out? Um, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess because like I'm also like in, in communi- community with these people. So like I would like know who else was in that category um, or like or they would just like talk about it straight up. But then again, it wasn't just a demographic or social thing. After interviewing people about what they thought the difference between a normal word and a Y word was, Amina realized that this thing was creating a brand new grammatical function on top of the language. So it would be so people would use it like when they're like replying to their friends. So they would be like friendly um, or they would like want to just kind of sound cutesy or or, or actually convey like the smallness of something um, or they would like um, use it along with the standard diminutive so they would like stack it so they would like kind of use it in these more kind of traditional ways or they would like use it to be a bit humorous or to add like an element of non-seriousness to whatever they tweeted Mm -hmm. um or maybe to kind of like lighten the effect of what they're saying this reminds me of a couple things in english i mean one is how if you get a text message from somebody and the person ends it with a period Mm -hmm. Which is what you're supposed to do in English. Yeah. In most languages, you're supposed to end with a period. If you do, yeah. you immediately assume this person is angry. Yeah. You know, it, even though they're just following standard English. And then the flip of that, what the wise reminded me a, a little bit of mm-hmm. is almost like LOL. Which when most people put LOL at the, at the end of a sentence, yeah. it's developed to the stage where nobody is actually laughing out loud. They're just saying... Mm-hmm hey, this thing that I wrote, I'm a little worried that it's going to come off as too serious or like I'm mm-hmm. angry or or something like that. So this thing that I wrote, I mean it in a friendly way. I'm saying it with a friendly look on my face. Please don't be upset because I care about how mm-hmm. you take this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's 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 actually like exactly the kind of function that I think it fulfills. And um, and the reason that I think, and this is like interesting because it parallels like, I guess, like how like English and how BCS work. It's interesting in that in BCS, like this kind of like marker of like non-seriousness, because there isn't really like an equivalent to LOL in BCS. So it's like, it is like this Y or like whatever else people use. This marker of seriousness is like used as like, like it's used like morphologically. Like it seems like it looks like a suffix or something like that, which you like fixed to a word but in english like the lol is just like like an entity of like its own again and i don't want to get too far into linguistics here but serbian does have a diminutive even if that word diminutive is new to you the concept is definitely something you heard of especially if you know any spanish that's a thing where you add ito or ita to the end of something to make it sound smaller or cuter so for example in spanish the word for house is casa 
But if you change that to casita, that grandiose house becomes smaller and closer and a little bit more familiar. And without stretching those linguistic comparisons too much, Serbian and BCS in general has functions that let you do something very similar. But there's some grammatical rules that you need to follow. But the why can be added to any word, basically however you want. So it's actually more versatile and it lets you pack in more creative meaning to a word than the standard language. But for Amina, the most important thing here is the social implications that this adds to the language. So I feel like it might have maybe just kind of more, most like generally speaking, like kind of a non-threatening or like friendly connotation. Um, if like we were to like look more into why it tends to be used by like queer people more, like it maybe also could just have kind of an in-group connotation. So if like someone is like using why, like they want to like signal to you that, you know, like I'm one of you or like you're one of me, like something like that, maybe. Which is, which can be extremely important. Yeah. If you feel like the surrounding world isn't very friendly to you, signaling to somebody that, hey, yeah, you and I are friends. We're on the same page. Yeah, exactly. As you were telling me, you were kind of starting, you were starting to really look online because you felt like you were missing something or something mm -hmm. was being lost and you needed to recuperate it. Mm -hmm. You were looking to be able to speak Serbian properly again. Mm -hmm. But what you ended up finding was a completely different, you know, improper Serbian, we could say. Um, mm -hmm. This seems to actually fit something that it's fulfilled a need for people. Yeah, because what you said, it is like true that like when I wanted to kind of make sure that I continue to understand the language that like, of course, I remembered how to actually speak it like grammatically in like scare quotes, like officially, like how it's grammatical to speak it. But the way that it's used online is like, of course, a lot more fluid um, because People could be like, you know, native speakers and they could have, you know, PhDs in their countries writing in like BCS. But but there's still, you know, like like ungrammatical use of language that is still, you know, conveys its own purpose or like signifies some kind of like in-group type of language. From the Internet, where wireless signals allow us to exist everywhere and nowhere at once, to a more confined space where those signals take on a different context. Hi, my name's Sophia Palka. I'm from North Carolina. I graduated last year from Princeton with a major in religious studies. This next one with Sophia is a little different. It's not an interview. Sophia wrote her senior thesis on how families were navigating spirituality in the pediatric intensive care unit. And she even made a documentary about it. But when we started talking, I got interested in the work that came before all that. And as it turns out, a lot of it goes back to an essay that she wrote the year before. An essay about trying to communicate with her little brother. I asked if she would share it with me. So, here it is. Victor slowly opens his eyes. His head rests on a foam block at the top of the hospital bed, and a white sheet covers the rest of him. His eyes, just barely open, move gradually around the room. 
They find me and I smile. Hi, little man, I say gently. He keeps looking at me. The nurse beside us exclaims, oh good, you're awake. Your sister is right here next to you. She then turns to hand the post-surgery feeding tube kit to my dad. I keep looking at my brother. I don't know if the nurse knows that Victor is nonverbal. It would be completely appropriate for her to expect that after the anesthesia wears off, the 14-year-old boy on the bed will start speaking. I know that he will not. He will laugh, cry, grunt, point. He will communicate, just in his very own ways. I do not understand him completely, but I do understand him some, and that some means the world to me. I am writing this essay for a class on conducting ethnographic research, but in thinking about my personal experience, I sometimes feel that the ethical dilemmas of misrepresenting others that ethnographers face out in the field is something that I face each and every time that I interact with my brother or speak to others about him. And yet, do I stop doing so? I consciously make the decision, right, wrong, or somewhere in between, to continue. What I have to trust is my own love for my brother, and that I will always strive to represent him as best as I can. The day before his surgery, Victor and I sit on the couch in his room. We've just finished reading one of his favorite books, the one about pirates being babysitters. I close the book and lay it down next to me. Victor sits quietly his hands tucked carefully beneath his legs, looking downwards at his knees that are at the same level on the sofa as mine. We are the same size. Hey, Vic, I say softly. He keeps looking downwards, quietly knocking his knees against each other. How do you feel about your surgery tomorrow? He continues knocking. Do you feel nervous, I ask? Uh, he says quietly. When my family and I communicate with Victor, we take uh to mean yes, given its similarity to uh-huh. Victor also clearly uses this when answering yes or no questions. He will respond with it when we ask him if he wants something, and then he is happy when he gets it. But his expression of no is much more difficult to understand. Sometimes he makes a guttural noise which indicates he doesn't want something and sometimes he just simply doesn't respond. I stay quiet for a little bit as he continues to look down. I'm sorry, I say. I pause for a little longer. I do think it will be good for you, though. You'll feel better and have more energy when you can eat more through your feeding tube, and you won't have to eat by mouth as much. I know how much you hate that. He continues to sit there, a little more still than usual. I sit and wait for a while. Then I take his little hand and trace small circles on his palm. He turns his hand upwards as if seeking my fingers, seemingly enjoying the sensation on his skin. He looks up at the mobile that hangs from the ceiling, watching the paper figures slowly twist in the air. From 14 years of experience with my brother, I approach our interactions with the assumption that I will do most of the talking and he will do most of the listening. And there, once again, is that inescapable assumption that communication is inherently verbal. The following day, the surgeon walked into Victor's hospital room to check on his recovery. I was lying next to my brother, holding his iPad while we were watching one of his favorite movies, Cars. The surgeon began asking how Victor was feeling, 
but the questions were not directed at the patient himself, but rather to us, his family members. I replied that Victor seemed to be feeling better, but was still in some pain. We had surmised this because over the last few hours, he had swatted at us, and when something is hurting him, he does not usually cry, but instead becomes angry. But in reality, we had no idea the exact amount of pain he was in or how he felt about it. I asked the surgeon for more pain medication, and he agreed. I glanced back at Victor, who was looking directly at me. I say that I'm careful about speaking for Victor, and yet I do it all the time. He lives in a world where communication with authorities such as doctors and teachers is verbal, and we help him make requests that ultimately improve his quality of life. And yet, how I wish that he could make those verbal requests himself. It seems sometimes that he wishes that as well. After a minute or two, Victor gets up from the sofa and starts heading to the door. Wait, I say, wanting us to stay in his room for a little while longer. Do you want to read a book? He turns and walks back, heading towards the boxes on the floor containing dozens of books sitting upright. His hand reaches down and pulls out a large, flat, red book with the words, You are special, written in gold lettering on the cover. He turns to me and hands me the book. You want this one? I ask. Oh, he replies. I motion beside me, and he carefully sits down, his hands under his legs again. This is the one that he usually brings to me when I ask him if he wants to read a book. In fact, sometimes I just ask him while we're anywhere in the house, do you want to read You Are Special? And he immediately turns to go to his room and get the book. I open the book to the first page and start reading. The Wemmicks were small wooden people. All of the wooden people were carved by a woodworker named Eli. The Wemmicks each have a box of star stickers and dot stickers that they stick to each other. When someone does something impressive, they earn a star, or something clumsy, they get a dot. The talented ones got stars too. Some could lift big sticks high above their heads or jump over tall boxes. Still others knew big words or could sing pretty songs. I pause here. And think. I think about the many times that my sister and I have impressed people by being athletic or by getting into Princeton. I think about how much Victor loves to hear me sing, but he has never sung a word himself. I go back to reading. Others, though, could do little. They got dots. Punchinello was one of these. He tried to jump high like the others, but he always fell. And when he fell, the others would gather around and give dots. At this point, Victor's upper lip starts to come down and his lower lip begins to tremble. Over the last year or so, he has been getting emotional at this exact same part in the book every time I read it to him. I pause and look at him. He takes his hand out and points his finger to the page. Do you want me to keep reading? I ask. Oh. I continue reading the next few sentences about how people keep giving Punchinello dots, and Victor slowly becomes more upset and lets out a small cry. Does this make you sad? Oh, he says. Is it because you relate to Punchinello? He turns his head and looks straight in my eyes. Oh. At this point in reading the story, I never know what to say after he gets upset 
In our life as siblings, so many people stick stars on me. But when interacting with strangers, Victor usually gets dots. Although people tend to be quite kind to him, he is never publicly recognized for his achievements in the same way that my sister and I am. And when people notice he is acting very differently than them, their initial reaction can sometimes be judgmental. In my mind, his emotional response to this part of the story seems to indicate that he wishes he could do many of the things that would earn him stars in the eyes of others. One of those might be speaking verbally. I think this because I see him throughout the day getting frustrated when trying to tell us something by gesturing or making noises that we don't understand. Victor points to the page again. It seems like he doesn't necessarily need me to say anything. He just wants to hear the rest of the book. I continue reading. Punchinello meets a Wemmick who has no stars or dots, because when someone tries to stick one on, they simply fall off. He asks her how she does it, and she tells him to go visit Eli, the woodcarver who carved all the Wemmicks. As Punchinello walks into the large wood shop, Eli picks him up and sets him on the table. Eli sees all of the gray dots on Punchinello and tells him that he doesn't care what the other Wemmicks think. He says, who are they to give stars or dots? They're Wemmicks just like you. What they think doesn't matter, Punchinello. All that matters is what I think. And I think that you are pretty special. Sometimes, Victor smiles when I read this line out loud. I usually point to his chest and say the words again. You are special. Victor loves something about the story. Through his reactions to the events in the narrative, he manages to communicate to me some of the ways he feels about his situation. His listening, though mostly silent, is not stagnant. It is dynamic. His changes in expression, some subtle and some overt, are ways that I can understand a few of his thoughts and emotions. Victor flips my assumptions about communication on its head. Through the act of speaking, I come to understand him. And through the act of listening, he tells me, this is also communication. I do think that Victor does wish for many of the things that my sister and I have, such as speech and various motor abilities. I do believe there are a few things he lacks that I should not automatically assume he wants. One of those has become quite clear in the days following his surgery. It would be easy to assume that Victor longs to eat by mouth, but it seems that, in actuality, he does not. Instead, Victor quite vehemently refuses to receive the majority of food through his mouth. This should be taken seriously as a form of communication about his own opinions. There are things that Victor likes, like spinning tops, watching Curious George, or listening to the same songs over and over. But we can't assume that just because he lacks a conventional desire for novelty, he must therefore long to act in a conventional way. This absence of a desire for novelty perhaps should not be regarded as merely an absence, but instead as a significant expression of his own agency to decide what it is that he wants for himself and how he wishes to spend his time. The story of Punchinello does not end with him suddenly performing impressive acts and receiving stars, 
but rather with a message from the woodworker, his creator, who is a metaphor for God. The story itself is a Christian allegory. The message that you are special because God loves you just the way you are is one that Victor requests to hear over and over. My family identifies with progressive Christianity, but we do not explicitly tell Victor what to believe. I have no idea what Victor thinks of this message, other than the fact that he wants to hear it. I could think of a million different interpretations of his thoughts, but the truth is I may never know for sure. I could also keep speaking for hours and hours, pages and pages, about the communication between us and my reflections on it. But once again, I find that if I simply sit still and do not speak, I understand the most. I close the book. Victor sits there quietly. In the few minutes after I am finished reading it, I always have this urge to fill the silence with all my thoughts about what the book said and what I think he might think about it. Sometimes I do, and he sits there for a little bit while I ramble. But this time I choose to be quiet because sometimes I also feel that my words just simply won't suffice. In these moments, I feel that Victor has somehow gone deeper or higher than where words can reach. Again, another way of understanding how we speak to each other. So this brings us back once again to the topic that this podcast is based around. A question that's maybe a little optimistic, but hey, a little optimism never hurt anybody. We'll hear from Amina first. So you've had a lot of time to study this very particular niche phenomenon. But most people who are listening to this, they don't speak Serbian or BCS period. And even those who do, they'd probably be pretty confused if they'd seen any of this Y slang that you've been talking about. But what if everybody knew about this? What if this phenomenon was common knowledge? So if if everybody knew or kind of was aware of like these like intricacies of how language changes and spreads and like develops, when people know this or are aware of this, it just makes them more open to I guess how like just change you know a changing language i mean and abstractly like you can say like yeah like people are open to change but people don't you know create you know different ways to say something or like kind of switch around like how they write things like just you know out of boredom or like just randomly language changes because these changes stick around because they're useful and they help us communicate more effectively in some way even if it's a very very niche and specific way I think if everybody knew what I've learned through this process of, of being with my brother um, through and also experiencing um, well, through just talking to a lot of the people that I've talked to about their, their personal experiences and hardships, I think hopefully I would think that they might come away with more of a reflection on the way that they personally communicate. Um, but that was also another point where I learned a lot about my own assumptions about things. Like with, mm. with my brother, for example, um, people in the past have, uh, come up to my family just like randomly off the street and told us, oh, 
there's a reason God put your brother in your life and there's a reason he gave him the syndrome and things like that. And my family and I always hated that, like absolutely loathed when that when someone would tell us that. Um, and then mm-hmm. I met families and talked to families that that was something they deeply believed in, that God or however they viewed God um, had a, this was God's will. And that was, and they gained a lot of Mm. strength and resilience from that perspective. And that was shocking to me because I couldn't understand that in my own, in the context of my own life. And yet I watched and and listened to how much strength that gave them when faced with something like the end of life. And that isn't to say that that's what all families believe that are in those contexts. I mean, I hadn't really realized how much strength and sense of agency, especially in a place like a hospital where parents can feel and siblings completely out of control. Mm-hmm. And so then thinking to where, I mean, so I'm going to medical school next year and I will, you know, four years from now be a resident having some maybe some of those kinds of conversations and on the one hand that's really scary um but I also think that my experience with my brother and then with this thesis work and some other experiences I have um may allow me to appreciate a little bit more uh some of that power dynamic and in those relationships or in, in the interactions between physicians and and patients and families do you think this experience is going to make you a different doctor? Hopefully. Um, learning to reflect a lot on my own assumptions and, and the power that I might have in the future as a physician. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, there's going to be so much to learn that I don't know yet about being a physician. So, um, so we'll see how it goes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode four of If Everybody Knew. Today's guests were Amina Faruqi, who graduated this year with an independent concentration in linguistics, which is one of the Humanities Council's academic programs, and also earned a certificate in visual arts. And Sophia Pauka, who graduated last year with a major in religion, and also earned a certificate in humanistic studies, which is another program within the council. And this episode would not be possible without their research and participation. That being said, the framing and editorializing and everything else in this episode, that's my own. So if you're curious to know more, you should definitely go to the source. And please check out the show notes at humanities.princeton.edu slash podcast. You can find a full transcript plus links to everything referenced in here and also some places you can learn more. And like I said, this was part two of a two-part series. So just in case you missed the first one, definitely make sure to go back and check that. But hopefully after hearing all that, maybe this makes some sense. From writing down African drum rhythms, to fake monster message boards, to Serbian internet slang, to how one family does their best to share their thoughts with one another, in a hospital or at home. Four different people, four different experiences, And hopefully, four different ways to think about something that I think is essential for all of us. The different ways in which we talk to one another. Hopefully, that sparked something for you. If Everybody Knew is produced with music composed by and hosted by me, Dexter Thomas.
See y'all out there. If Everybody Knew is brought to you by the Humanities Council at Princeton University. Our mission is to nurture the humanities locally and globally, engage diverse perspectives past and present, and enrich public dialogue with humanistic approaches. For information about our programs and events, please visit our website at humanities.princeton.edu.